Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Shirley Temple. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a daiquiri, and on this week's episode, we are exploring one of the most infamous mass shootings in U.S. history. The Columbine High School Massacre, or simply Columbine, has become the shorthand used to describe mass shootings. We are going to look at the events and the perpetrators of the deadly events of April 20th, 1999 in a small Colorado town. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were both born in 1981. Harris was born in Wichita, Kansas, but moved around frequently as a child due to his father's occupation in the United States Air Force, while Dylan was born and raised near Columbine. Harris's family eventually settled in Colorado in 1992. Shortly after, Eric and Dylan met while they were both in the seventh grade. Over time, they became increasingly close. According to their journal entries, Harris and Klebold had seemed to begin planning the attacks by May 1998, nearly a year prior. Throughout the next 11 months, they meticulously built explosives and gathered an arsenal of weapons. Both Harris and Klebold each left behind several journal writings and home videos, ones they made both alone and together foreshadowing the massacre and explaining their motives. They hoped this content would be viewed by the public and inspire followers, although much of the evidence has never been released by authorities. They were both enrolled in video production classes and kept five videotapes that were recorded with school video equipment. Only two of these, quote-unquote hitmen for hire and quote-unquote rampart range and part of a third known as quote-unquote radioactive clothes, have been released. The remaining three tapes detailed their plans and reasons for the massacre, including the ways they hid their weapons and deceived their parents. Most were shot in the Harris family basement and are thus known as the basement tapes. Before the massacre, Harris left a microcassette labeled quote-unquote Nixon on the kitchen table. On it, Harris said, quote, it's less than nine hours now, end quote placing the recording at sometime around 2.30 a.m. He went on to say, quote, people will die because of me, and quote, it will be a day that will be remembered forever, end quote. 30 minutes before the attack, they made a final video saying goodbye and apologizing to their friends and family. In the months prior to the attacks, Harris and Klebold acquired two 9mm firearms and two 12-gauge shotguns. Harris had a high point 995 carbine with 13 10-round magazines and a Savage Springfield 67H pump-action shotgun. Klebold used a 9mm Intratech Tech 9 semi-automatic handgun with one 52, 132, and 128 round magazine, and a Stevens 311D double barreled shotgun. Harris's shotgun was sawed off to around 26 inches, and Klebold shortened his shotgun's length to 23 inches, a felony under the National Firearms Act. On November 22nd, 1998, their friend Robin Anderson purchased a carbine rifle and the two shotguns for the pair at the Tanner Gun Show as they were too young to legally purchase the guns themselves. After the attack, she told investigators that she had believed the pair wanted the weapons for target shooting and denied that she had prior knowledge of their plans and was not charged. Harris and Klebold both held part-time jobs at the local Blackjack Pizza. Through Philip Duran, one of their co-workers, Klebold bought a Tech 9 handgun from Mark Maines for $500 at another gun show on January 23rd. In addition to the firearms, the complex and highly planned attack involved several improvised explosive devices. Harris and Klebold constructed a total of 99 bombs. These included pipe bombs, carbon dioxide cartridges filled with gunpowder, Molotov cocktails, and propane tanks converted to bombs. The propane bombs were used in the cafeteria, the shooter's cars, and in another location intended as a diversion. For ignition, they used storm matches, cannon fuses, and model rocket igniters, as well as timing devices built from mechanical alarm clocks for the propane bombs. 
Harris and Klebold were both equipped with knives, but investigators do not believe they ever used them during the massacre. Harris had a boot knife on his belt and a quote-unquote Kyber Pass machete Bowie knife taped to the back of his ankle. Both had an R referencing Harris's alias R.E.B. etched into the handle and the machete had a swastika on the sheath. Klebold had a Cobra knife mounted to his belt on the left side as well as a switchblade in his right pocket. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Harris and Klebold placed two duffel bags in the cafeteria. Each bag contained propane bombs set to detonate during the A lunch shift, which began at 11.15. No witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at CHS did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape at around 11.14 a.m. Shortly after the massacre, police speculated the bombs were placed during this quote-unquote tape change. Harris and Klebold are seen in the tapes planting the bombs in casual school clothes separately. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the high school as a full-time school resource officer. Gardner usually ate lunch with students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the smoker's pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of Columbine and two miles south of the fire station. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, causing a small fire, which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. It went off after first having been moved. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to the police at the school the possibility of devices with motion activators. Harris and Klebold changed clothes and returned separately to Columbine. Harris parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot and Klebold parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria was their primary bomb target. The cafeteria had a long outside window wall, ground level doors, and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was located above the cafeteria in the second story window wall. Each car contained bombs. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmate Brooks Brown, with whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Harris, whom he earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Harris, a good student, was unlikely to miss school days with important academic obligation. Brown berated Harris for missing the test. Harris, acting unconcerned, replied, quote, it doesn't matter anymore, end quote. Harris went on, quote, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home, end quote. Brown, feeling uneasy and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away down South Pier Street. Meanwhile, Harris and Cleveland armed themselves using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath their trench coats. They lunch bags containing bombs and ammunition. Harris had concealed his shotgun in one of the bags. Beneath the trench coats, Harris wore a military bandolier and a white t-shirt with the inscription, natural selection, and black letters, a mantra he had adopted. Klebold wore a black t-shirt with wrath in red letters. The cafeteria bombs fell to detonate. Had these explosives detonated as intended, they would have killed or severely wounded the 488 students in the cafeteria and damaged the school structure, collapsing the library into the cafeteria and possibly killing more students and staff. At 11.19 a.m., 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Castaldo were having lunch and sitting on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Klebold threw a pipe bomb towards the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated, causing it to give off smoke. 
Richard thought that it was no more than a crude senior prank. Likewise, several students during the incident first thought that they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing, quote unquote, go, go, before Klebold and Harris pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting. The two allegedly returned to where Rachel Scott and Richard Costaldo laid on the ground injured. Klebold approached Richard, asking if he believed in God. He truthfully answered no. Harris then turned to Scott, who was crying. He, quote unquote, pulled Rachel's head up by her hair. Here, the situation is disputed. Several students witnessed Harris say something to Rachel before lifting his gun up to her temple and firing a fatal shot. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carbine. One shot was to the left temple. Richard was shot eight times in the chest, arm, and abdomen by both Harris and Klebold. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. After firing twice, Klebold's Tech 9 jammed and he was forced to temporarily cease shooting to fix it, which he did by reloading a new magazine into his pistol. Meanwhile, Harris took off his trench coat and aimed his carbine down the west staircase in the direction of three students, Daniel Rorbo, Sean Graves, and Lance Kirkland. The students presumed they were paintball guns and were about to walk up the stairs directly below the shooters. Harris fired 10 times, killing Rorbo and injuring Graves and Kirkland. William David Sanders, a teacher and coach at the school, was in the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire and began warning students. Harris was on top of the stairs shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed 17-year-old Anne-Marie Hawkhalter as she tried to flee. Meanwhile, art teacher Patty Nielsen was inside the school. She had noticed the commotion and walked toward the west entrance with student Brian Anderson. Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell two students, quote-unquote, knock it off, thinking they were either filming a video or pulling a student prank. As Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the gunman shot out the windows, injuring him with flying glass. Nielsen was hit in the shoulder with shrapnel. Anderson and Nielsen ran back down the hall into the library, and Nielsen alerted the students inside to the danger, telling them to get under desks and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. At 11.22 a.m., a custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner, the assigned resource officer to Columbine on the school radio, requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south on Pierce Street, where at 11.23 a.m. he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24, he heard another call on the radio, quote, Neil, there's a shooter in the school, end quote. Inside the school cafeteria, Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallatine, initially told students to get under the tables, then successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. At 11.29 a.m., Harris and Klebold entered the library. 52 students, two teachers, and two librarians were inside. Harris yelled at everyone to quote-unquote get up, loud enough to be heard on the 911 call. When no one complied, Harris yelled, quote, fine, I'll start shooting anyway, end quote. Throughout the massacre in the library, they ordered everybody to get up and said how long they had been waiting for this and seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like, quote-unquote, woo, after shooting. While ordering the jocks to stand up, one of the two said, quote, anybody with a white hat or a sports emblem on it is dead, end quote. Wearing a white baseball cap at Columbine was a tradition among sports team members. Nobody stood up, and several students tried to hide their white hats. Klebold removed his trench coat. He then fired his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring three students, Patrick Ireland, Daniel Steepleton, and Mackay Hall. Harris walked toward the lower row of computer desks with his shotgun and fired a single shot under the first desk while down on one knee. He hit 14-year-old Stephen Kernow with a mortal wound to the neck. He then moved to the adjacent computer desk, injuring 17-year-old Casey Rugziger 
with a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder, also grazing her neck and severing a major artery. Harris then walked to a table south of the lower computer table with two students underneath, Cassie Bernal and Emily Wyant. Harris slapped the surface of the table twice as he knelt and said, quote-unquote, peekaboo, before shooting Bernal once in the head with a shotgun, killing her. After fatally shooting Bernal, Harris turned towards the next table where Brie Prescott sat next to the table rather than under it. Harris's nose was bleeding. Witnesses later reported that he had blood around his mouth. Harris asked Brie if she wanted to die, and she responded with a plea for her life. Harris laughed and responded, quote, everybody's gonna die, end quote. When Klebold said, quote unquote, shoot her, Harris responded, quote, no, we're gonna blow up the school anyway, end quote. Klebold walked towards the east area of the library. Harris walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Klebold. The latter shot at a display case next to the door, then turned and shot towards the closest table, hitting and injuring 17-year-old Mark Clinton in the head and shoulder. He then turned around towards the table to his left and fired, injuring 18-year-olds Lisa Krutz, Lauren Townsend, and Valen Schoener with the same shotgun blast. Klebold then moved towards the same table and fired several shots with the Tech 9 killing Townsend. Behind the table, a 17-year-old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Bree, sat next to the table rather than beneath it due to lack of space. Harris shot Fleming with his shotgun, hitting her in the back and killing her. The shooters moved towards the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at a table. Harris then pointed his carbine under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved out of the way. Harris turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, an acquaintance of Klebold's. He asked Klebold what he was doing, to which he shrugged and answered, quote, oh, just killing people, end quote. Savage asked if they were going to kill him. However, because of the background noise, Klebold said, quote unquote, what? Savage asked again whether they were going to kill him. Klebold said no and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance and through the cafeteria. Harris turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where he had been, hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Macer. Macer retaliated by either shoving a chair at Harris or grabbing his leg. Harris fired again and hit Macer in the center of his face at close range, killing him. Harris then moved south and fired three shots under another table, critically injuring two 17-year-olds, Jennifer Doyle, and Austin Eubanks. Klebold then shot once, fatally wounding 17-year-old Corey DePutter at 11.35. There were no further victims. They had killed 10 people in the library and wounded 12. By 12 p.m., SWAT teams were stationed outside the school and ambulances started taking the wounded to local hospitals. Harrison Klebold re-entered the library, which was empty of survivors except for the unconscious Ireland and the injured Crutes. Once inside at 12.02 p.m., police were shot at again through the library windows and returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.05, all gunfire from the school had ceased. By 12.08, both gunmen had killed themselves. Harris sat down with his back to a bookshelf and fired his shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Klebold went down on his knees and shot himself in the left temple with his Tech 9. A call for additional ammunition for police officers in case of a shootout came at 12.20. Authorities reported pipe bombs by 1 p.m., and two SWAT teams entered the school at 1.09, moving from classroom to classroom, discovering hidden students and faculty. They entered at the end of the school opposite the library, hampered by old maps and unaware of a new wing that had recently been added. They were also hampered by the sound of the fire alarms. At 2.15 p.m., students placed a sign in the window, one bleeding to death, in order to alert police and medical personnel of Dave Sanders' location in the science room. Police initially feared it was a ruse by the shooters. A shirt was also tied to the doorknob. At 2.30, this was spotted, and by 2.40, SWAT officers evacuated the room of students and called for a paramedic. Hansi and Starkey were reluctant to leave Sanders behind. 
By three, the SWAT officers had moved Sanders to a storage room, which was more easily accessible. As they did so, a paramedic arrived and found Sanders had no pulse. He had died of his injuries in the storage room before he could receive medical care. He was the only teacher to die in the shooting. A total of 188 rounds of ammunition were fired by the perpetrators during the massacre. Firing nearly twice as much as Klebold, Harris fired his carbine rifle a total of 96 times. 47 shots outside, 36 shots inside, and 13 shots in the library. Harris also discharged his shotgun 25 times, 21 times in the library, and 4 times inside. Klebold fired the Tech 9 handgun 55 times, 3 shots outside, 31 shots inside, and 21 shots in the library. Klebold also fired 12 rounds from his double-barreled shotgun, twice outside, 4 times inside, and 6 times in the library. Law enforcement officers fired 141 rounds during exchanges of gunfire with the shooters. 12 students and one teacher were murdered. Their names were Casey Brunel, Steve Cornell, Corey DePutter, Kelly Fleming, Matt Ketchter, Daniel Maser, Daniel Rothbaugh, Dave Sanders, Rachel Scott, Isaiah Scholes, John Tomlin, Lauren Townsend, Kyle Velasquez. So why did they do it? There are differing reports. Some say Harris and Cleaver were very unpopular students once they were upperclassmen, as well as frequent targets of bullying, while others say that they were not near the bottom of the school's social hierarchy and that each had many friends along with active social lives. Columbine High School was known to have an intense quote-unquote jock culture, which saw popular students, mainly athletes, benefit from special treatment from faculty and other students. The pair's aforementioned writings and videos gave insight into their rationale for the shootings. The FBI concluded that Harris was a psychopath who exhibited narcissistic traits, unconstrained aggression, and a lack of empathy, while Clybolt was concluded to be a angry depressive with a vengeful attitude towards individuals who he believed had mistreated him. However, neither Harris nor Kleber were formally diagnosed with any personality disorders prior to the attack, so this conclusion is often debated. In the following years, various media outlets attributed multiple motivating factors to the attack, including bullying, mental illness, racism, psychiatric medication, and violence in music, movies, and video games. Despite these conclusions, the exact motives for the attack remains inconclusive. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Columbine High School massacre? It's so upsetting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, how it really was a change for our American society, our culture, I guess, honestly, kind of a defining moment. I wish it could have been a positive defining moment, but it's not. Just the devastation, all the poor kids that just showed up to school and the teacher who was doing what it's like making me honestly kind of emotional talking about it. I think because it does feel so real, like this could be any of us just with like what the the state of the country is like and lack of gun control in so many places. The teacher that was trying to help as many kids as he could, it didn't need to happen. And the fact that we don't really know why it happened is upsetting to another upsetting element. And then to the, the I don't want to say fallacies, but the whole like, we don't know exactly how some things played out. Like, were they bullied? Because that was like the narrative for so long that they were like angry, bullied kids that just couldn't take it anymore. And then to hear, personally, I've heard this more recently that no, that wasn't the case. Like they had friends, they maybe they didn't get along with some people, but they weren't being bullied. That is like another weird element. And then we talked about Rachel Scott, the back and forth with was she asked if she believed in God and was she shot because of that another element. I don't, I have so much to say and I don't really know where to start. I do think Harris was a psychopath and I'm not by any means excusing Klebold's behavior, but I think he was maybe a little more vulnerable and Harris could prey on that. 
there's obvious a clear, I don't know if need for attention is the right word, but they knew what they were doing and they seemed to not only enjoy murdering people, but knowing that they hoped that they could leave some kind of legacy. And unfortunately they have, and that is truly infuriating to me. I mean, I've seen, like I've stumbled upon fan pages on Instagram for these two is sickening that people uphold people like this. I know a lot of people want to blame the parents and I'm not sure if we're going to talk about that, but I I don't know if that's really right in this situation. This was like an unprecedented thing. I think there's only so much blame you can put on the parents. And I will say documentary that I like that is about Columbine, but about gun control at the heart is bowling for Columbine. It's by Michael Moore. And I know he's kind of a controversial figure, but I would recommend everyone watch that. I remember watching it as a teenager and just being fascinated by the kind of what we're saying, like the narrative around Columbine and the future of what the current, the state of the country, when it came out, it might've come out in like the year 2000 or so. It was pretty soon after Columbine and how some people were very deeply affected and some people weren't and thought it was okay to have an NRA rally just miles away from where 13 people were brutally murdered in defining mass shooting in this country. Again, we see like elements of violence in movies and video games, maybe like a tad bit of the satanic panic, because I'm pretty sure Harrison Klebold were fans of Marilyn Manson, and he's interviewed in the documentary, and he is a horrible person for things I won't get into that aren't really related, but I think kind of interesting to hear his take on how he was kind of vilified for them just being fans of his music. It's just truly so upsetting to hear about the details and how well planned this was, even though it does kind of seem like they were just, there was no plan once things started to happen, but just hearing about the planning is just upsetting. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to word it. It just makes me, it makes my heart hurt, honestly, hearing about this and knowing how young everybody was too. What are your thoughts, Del? I just want to second your point about the utter, just the level of devastation. And that goes, of course, to the actual events of that day, as well as the long-stemming ramifications of this one case. There are few cases that the name alone sparks so many thoughts and so many just callousness towards other people. Now, we don't know why they did it, right? They left a lot of writings. A lot of those have not been released to the public. And so there hasn't been sort of a public understanding of why they did it. I can definitely say, and in my opinion, that I wouldn't pin the blame on their parents. I wouldn't pin the blame on popular media, whether that be music, video games, and we've talked about this in previous cases. I pin the blame on Harrison Klebold. I think that they were evil individuals, similar to a lot of the people that we have talked about. And one of the things that makes them particularly evil is the fact that Their goal was to inspire, and that inspiration has come to fruition in so many ways. And at the end of this episode, we're going to look through the numerous things that have been inspired by them, whether it just be their general actions or if they were specifically mentioned. So I'll save some commentary for that. But just looking at this case in general, looking at all the disputed things that really, for me, It matters in the general sense of we want to know why it happened, but whether they were bullied or not, it doesn't justify what they did. It wouldn't justify them targeting the person that actually bullied them, and it wouldn't justify them terrorizing their school, terrorizing their community, because they harbored deep-seated self-resentment and self-hatred. Harris was likely a psychopath, and you know, 
of course, they weren't tested for it. But if you look at their actions, I think that's very clear. Klebold, and I've seen so many interviews of his mom talking about it. And some of their writings did speak to how they wanted to deceive their parents. And she just speaks of the pain. And while I don't think I fully ascribe to the thought process of the shooter's families are also victims, I don't paint that picture. I do think there's a sadness when it comes to their families because of that uncertainty, because of some public perception that they should have known, right? It's always that question. They should have known. There were warning signs. But if someone is going through all this preparation, going through all of these steps to hide, I think it is highly possible that the parents did not know. And if they had known, they would have tried to take steps to stop it. Some of the other things that were mentioned include like racism and psychiatric medication. Again, I think the media just tends to throw a lot of things at the wall when it comes to these uncertain motives. In certain cases, there was allegedly some racism when it came to the murder of Isaiah Scholes. They allegedly used racial slurs against him, including the N-word. Again, that's disputed. So I don't want to say like, oh, that's definite. But also they're mass shooters. So I really don't care about people assuming that they're racist as well, to be perfectly honest. But when it comes to psychiatric medication, there has been since then, and definitely in recent times, a big push to demonize psychiatric medication in a way and say that it causes hyperviolent behavior. And unfortunately, this case just fits right into that narrative. All in all, this case is not only emblematic of mass shootings and just the totality of these type of incidents in, in the United States. It's also a big what if. What if the resource officer was at the school? What if the police had responded faster? What if the bombs had detonated as planned? What if the diversion tactic had worked? Is so many what-ifs, we're never going to find the answers to those. But hopefully, in continuing to talk about the case, we do find different ways to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Hollow words in this country with how people interpret the Second Amendment. Um, we're not going to get into that debate today, but there are definitely some changes when it comes to guns that you know we need to have eventually. So with that, this case has had long-reaching consequences. The shooting has inspired dozens of copycat killings, and this whole thing is dubbed the Columbine Effect, and it includes many deadlier shootings across the world. So following the Columbine shooting, schools across the United States instituted new security measures such as transparent backpacks, metal detectors, school uniforms, and increased security guards. Some schools implemented the numbering of school doors to improve public safety response. Several schools throughout the country resorted to requiring students to wear computer-generated IDs. Schools also adopted a zero-tolerance approach to possession of weapons and threatening behavior by students. Several social science experts feel the zero-tolerance approach adopted in schools has been implemented too harshly, however, with unintended consequences creating other problems. Police followed a traditional tactic at Columbine, surround the building, set up a perimeter, and contain the damage. That approach has been replaced by a tactic known as the immediate action rapid deployment tactic. This tactic calls for a team to advance into the site of any ongoing shooting, but even with just a single officer, if more are not available. In fact, the majority of active shooters are stopped by a single officer. Police officers using this tactic are trained to move toward the sound of gunfire in formation and neutralize the shooter as quickly as possible. There has been widespread adoption of high-strength body armor and patrol rifles by police departments across the United States in response to the increased active shooter threat. Their goal is to stop the shooter at all costs, 
they are to walk past wounded victims as the aim is to prevent the shooter from killing or wounding more. Dave Cullen has stated, quote, the active protocol has proved successful at numerous shootings. At Virginia Tech alone, it probably saved dozens of lives, end quote. The Columbine shootings influenced subsequent school shootings with several such plots mentioning it. Fear of copycats has sometimes led to the closing of entire school districts. According to psychiatrist Edwin Fuller-Torrey of the Treatment Advocacy Center, a legacy of the Columbine shooting is its quote-unquote allure to disaffected youth. Ralph Larkin examined 12 major school shootings in the U.S. in the following eight years and found that in eight of those, quote, the shooters made explicit reference to Harris and Klebold, end quote. Larkin wrote that the Columbine massacre established a quote-unquote script for shootings. They said, quote, numerous post-Columbine rampage shooters referred directly to Columbine as their inspiration. Others attempted to supersede the Columbine shootings in body count. End quote. A 2015 investigation by CNN identified, quote, more than 40 people charged with Columbine-style plots, end quote. A 2014 investigation by ABC News identified, quote, at least 17 attacks and another 36 alleged plots or severe threats against schools since the assault on Columbine High School that can be tied to the 1999 massacre, end quote. Ties identified by ABC News included online research by the perpetrators into the Columbine shooting, clipping news coverage and images of Columbine, explicit statements of admiration of Harrison Clebo, such as writings in journals and on social media, in video posts and in police interviews, timing plant to the anniversary of Columbine, plans to exceed the Columbine victim count and other ties. In 2015, journalist Malcolm Gladwell, writing in the New Yorker magazine, proposed a threshold model of school shootings in which Harrison Kleber was their triggering actor in, quote, a slow motion, ever evolving riot in which each new participant's actions make sense in reaction to and in combination with those that came before, end quote. Before we look at the numerous copycat crimes and other individuals inspired by Columbine, Jenny, what are your thoughts on the changes caused by this shooting? I guess, I mean, to hear about the police tactic, I think is for the best. I know everyone has, you know, like their thoughts on the police, but in this kind of situation, like who else are you going to go to? And there's a lot of arguments for and against like police funding, but I do understand, you know, this is a very common issue in the country now. Police departments do need to be equipped to handle these situations. So I do understand that. And it seems like it's for the best that that in particular has happened. The computer generated IDs we mentioned, I don't know what exactly that was meant to do, but I know the metal detectors like that's still around at many schools school uniforms. I think, honestly, like my school was really affected by stuff like this. The transparent backpacks, that was a big thing. My elementary and middle school, we had them, my God, like almost the entire time I was there. We also got like bulletproof glass in like the administrative office in my school, not directly because of Columbine, but we did end up getting that. And then we had uniforms too. I don't know necessarily how uniforms will help with to deter school shootings. Um, I'd be interested to learn a little more. And, you know, before I went to high school, we also got a security guard at my school too. I would be curious though, as to what, if you felt any of these changes at your school's Definitely. I think the most prominent was having increased number of school resource officers. And for middle and elementary school, we did have metal detectors. I went to a smaller high school. So instead of metal detectors, we actually had bag checks that we had to go through every day before we were allowed in school. I agree with you. I'm not sure how some of these things would have really prevented this or any other mass shooting. They were students at the school, so they would have had the uniforms. They would have had the IDs. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I definitely do agree with the immediate action rapid deployment tactic. 
I think that it's important in these situations to do what's best. And like the tactic is describing, make sure that no further harm is coming to anyone. I know that it can sound a bit callous to hear that the police will walk past wounded individuals. And I know that people's first instinct is like, well, if you see someone wounded, you're a cop, stop them. But their kind of motive is to, you know, go in and make sure no one else is harmed. I remember thinking about this when a lot of flack fell on the Uvalde Police Department because they completely seemed to abandon this tactic and didn't uh, continue engagement. You know, it was a lot of standing around based on the videos that were released. So I think that as long as this tactic is being deployed universally and uniformly by police departments, it should even if it's not preventing a shooting from starting, hopefully it's decreasing the decreasing the amount of casualties and wounded individuals. But I mean, I'm not going to say it on here, but I actually just was thinking that I remember my student ID. It was a six digit number. And I think I got it probably in elementary school, which was right around Columbine when I was in elementary school and had it throughout my entire pre-college academic career. Do you um, still remember yours? Were you guys given one? We didn't have IDs until I was in high school. I don't know if we had like a number on it, but I know a lot of schools like you had to get them like like a new one every year. We never really did that. I don't remember. I had a number for my college ID and I don't remember that now. But if you had asked me like, I don't know, five years ago, I probably would remember it. Something else I thought of that I wanted to mention real quick and how this has affected schools is like lockdown drills and having to run through a drill to prepare for somewhat like an intruder or an active shooter. We did like bomb threat drills at my school too. And I guess I was maybe a a tad older in like elementary school when we started doing them. I feel like I wasn't as frightened by them. I think it was always kind of eerie though, having to hide under your desk and just be dead silent in the school. And I have heard now that a lot of younger kids that have to grow up doing this are really struggling like with anxiety. And that really breaks my heart to hear. Yeah, I do remember those. I feel like they were treated like fire drills. You know, the fire drills that we used to have to do? It was kind of like, okay, this is a regular thing that we have to do. I also went to school in the post 9-11 era, as you did. And I feel like it was tied to that as well. Like we need to be prepared for anything that may happen, whether it be a lockdown, whether it be stay in the classroom, the teacher had to like lock the door or it was something like that. And yeah, we had to hide under our desks or go to like a particular corner of the room was in one. It was especially strange. It was a strange time. And I'm not surprised that there are long-lasting kind of psychiatric effects based on that. It's one thing to do a fire drill, which is something that is kind of innocuous. It's dangerous, of course, but people understand like, okay, a fire can break out for non-nefarious purposes. It's another thing to instill in very young people that at any moment someone can come in and try to kill them and harm them. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but all of this seems like I feel so disconnected to this now as an adult. But like as a kid, this really was just like, oh, it's our like quarterly lockdown drill that we have to do. Like, you know, like we would get told beforehand that it was going to happen. And yeah, it was just like a fire drill. It was just like another thing we had to do, which is so bizarre to think about. Uh, I definitely agree. But like you said, it just became kind of a part of our schedule. And I mean, I think that speaks to how desensitized that you can end up. And whether that is a good or bad thing in the long run, of course, you know, we would have to look at the studies and the research on that one. But I just, as a layman, I really can't, I can't imagine that that's a healthy thing for 
someone to go through for the decade and a half that they're in school. As we mentioned, Columbine has had many copycats. The first copycat may have been the W.R. Myers high school shooting just eight days after Columbine when a 14-year-old Canadian student went into his former school in Tabor, Alberta at lunchtime with a sawed-off 22 caliber rifle under his dark blue trench coat and opened fire, killing one student. A month after the massacre, Heritage High School in Conyers, Georgia, had a shooting which Attorney General Janet Reno called a Columbine quote-unquote copycat. A friend of Harrison Klebold, Eric Veek, was arrested after threatening to quote-unquote finish the job at Columbine High School in October 1999. In 2001, Charles Andrew Williams, the perpetrator of the Santana High School shooting, reportedly told his friends that he was going to quote-unquote pull a Columbine, though none of them took him seriously. Convicted students Brian Draper and Tori Adamick of Pocatello High School in Idaho, who murdered their classmate Cassie Jo Stoddart, mentioned Harris and Klebold in their homemade videos and were reportedly planning a quote-unquote Columbine-like shooting. In September 2006, a student at East High School in Green Bay, Wisconsin, informed school staff of a plot to carry out a quote-unquote Columbine-style attack on the school. A search of the involved student's home yielded weapons and improvised explosive. Two students served time in prison for conspiracy to commit first-degree intentional homicide. A third student was given a lesser sentence for conspiracy to damage property with explosives. In a self-made video recording sent to the news media by Trill prior to his committing the Virginia Tech shootings, he referred to the Columbine massacre as an apparent motivation. In the recording, he wore a backwards baseball cap and referred to Harrison Klebold as quote-unquote martyrs. Adam Lanza, the perpetrator of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, had, quote, an obsession with mass murders, in particular, the April 1999 shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado, end quote. In June 2014, a married couple, Gerald and Amanda Miller, shot and killed two Las Vegas police officers and an intervening civilian before being confronted by other police. Gerald was fatally shot by an officer while Amanda committed suicide shortly after. They both talked about committing, quote, the next Columbine, end quote, and idolized Harrison Klebold, according to a neighbor's account. The 2018 Santa Fe High School shooting in which 10 people were killed strongly resembled the Columbine massacre. The perpetrator used a pump-action shotgun and homemade explosives, wore clothes similar as Harris and Klebold, including a black trench coat and combat boots, and reportedly yelled, quote-unquote, surprise to a victim during the shooting, a possible reference to the library massacre at Columbine. In September 2021, two teens were arrested in Lee County, Florida, and were accused of plotting a school shooting. A search conducted of the teens' home showed a map of the school and security cameras labeled. Several knives and a gun were also found. The sheriff department said the teens had a, quote, particular interest in Columbine, end quote, and that they had been ordered to undergo mental evaluation before possible charges being filed. Additionally, four teenagers were charged in Pennsylvania after a police investigation found detailed evidence of a plan to target Dunmore High School outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania, on April 20th, 2022, the 23rd anniversary of the attack. Text messages between the students planning the attack claiming, quote-unquote, dibs on certain potential victims and that they wanted, quote, everything to go down like Columbine, end quote. In August 2022, the perpetrator of the 2022 Bend, Oregon shooting wrote in an online manifesto he was partially influenced by the Columbine massacre. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these copycats and other mass shootings that have been inspired by Columbine? It makes me so mad. Like, I feel like words can't even describe it, especially knowing that Klebold and Harris are getting what they wanted. It pisses me off so much. I never realized that there were so many so quickly after Columbine, like something that happened eight days later. I didn't know that like a friend of theirs was involved in something. 
So that was kind of surprising to hear, but to hear like other, all these numbers and then like someone like Adam Lanza, like it's not really surprising. It's upsetting. I mean, it's not surprising, but it is still shocking to see how many people are citing these two as their inspiration and wanting to be like them. And then that case that we ended with in Pennsylvania calling dibs on people. What is that? Like that just makes my blood boil to hear people talking about murdering people as just like, oh, I have dibs on the shotgun in the like the front seat of the car. Like, oh, dibs on that ice cream sandwich when we get back to your house. Like, it's just nothing. It's like fun and games to these people. And I don't understand it. What are your thoughts? I agree with you 100%. I think that the level of callous that individuals show towards other people and being inspired by the most despicable elements of humanity is disgusting and it's frightening because a part of these attacks is you don't know. There's not always red flags. There's not always, especially in a case where they can be stopped, any type of evidence that the police can use to try to make sure that these attacks don't happen. And like you said, eight days afterwards, like Barely a week afterwards, there were already people being inspired and they are getting what they want in a way. Yeah, I was going to say, too, you kind of started talking about this, but how many times and not even these kind of cases, but in other cases of someone like joking about like killing their dad or, you know, joking about doing something And then people didn't take it seriously. And then it ended up like someone being killed. So truly, like, I hope no one is in this position where they know someone that is like making statements like this. But please say something if you are ever in that situation, because maybe it is just nothing. But again, how many times have we seen stories like this where it did turn into mass violence? That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Columbine High School Massacre. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the trials of Amanda Knox and the murder of Meredith Kircher. As always, stay safe.